Hey folks, welcome back. This is Elliot and Andy with the Poor Pearls Almanac. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can find us on Patreon if you're enjoying what we're doing here and you'd like to help us cover some of the costs of hosting these podcasts. We don't explicitly offer any of our traditional content focused on the specific folds of the podcast to our Patreons in terms of limited access or anything like that right now. Knowledge is for everyone. But we have started up a Patreon-only miniseries called The Prologues, during which we will do some critiques on various ecological subject matters. We've also included clips of this entire series up on the Patreon as well. So if you want to hear some of that stuff and all the other episodes, go check it out. We've also released one episode that was asked by popular demand for public consumption, so that's a good place to check it out and see if you'd like to hear more. On top of this content, we've got stickers available, and we're including some footage from Andy's farm, putting our theory that we talk about in the podcast into practice. So if you want to see what's going on over there, check it out. Any support we can get to offset our actual costs, we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate. So please check us out on Patreon, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us over there as well. In this episode, we'll be talking with Michael from Four Thieves Vinegar Collective. You might have heard of their work primarily the EpiPencil, which is kind of what they built a name for themselves with. And primarily, they've been working with 3D printing to make medicine available to people that are traditionally marginalized. For example, working with various groups to make birth control accessible in places where it isn't, various building mini labs so that people can essentially try to create their own medicines as they see fit and able to. And we have a bigger conversation about the role of self-determination when it comes to medicine and whether or not we have the right to self-medicate as we see necessary. And that comes down to this bigger question of who is an authority on our own bodies. Right. It does bring up this uh, moral question of um, if somebody is in dire needs and they deem that you know they need medicine, a specific type of medicine to help them out, there are barriers in place with the system that we have now that prevents some people from getting access to the things that they need. This is aimed at removing or breaking down those barriers, but it's sort of a band-aid to a bigger problem. And I think we kind of address that as well in this conversation. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things we do talk about is um, the, the role of this type of technology in terms of rebuilding new societies. For example, we talk a bit about the Zapatistas and uh, what what role this kind of technology has in uh, organizing communities like that that are outside the scope of the medical industrial complex that we are so heavily dependent on and kind of where this fits into the, the diametric conversation between pharmaceutical, traditional medicine and naturalist type medicine, that homeopathy. So it was a really great conversation. I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. Thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us today. For those that aren't familiar with Four Thieves Vinegar Collective, can you explain exactly what you guys do and what your goals and visions are? In a nutshell, we are an anarchist collective that 
tries to bring medicines and medical technologies to people who need them but don't have them and we're not too fussy about how we get that done. So where did the idea come from? Was it just like a frustration, a personal experience, or just a general anger? Well, it was a combination of things. I certainly had a number of personal experiences where medical technology didn't reach the people who needed it, and it was very difficult to watch. It's part of my background coming from science there's this, especially in the pure, quote unquote, pure sciences, there's a tendency to fall into thinking that once a problem is solved, you don't have to worry about it anymore. And that's where a lot of the frustration came for me, because when you think, oh, well, great, you know, in the 50s, we figured out birth control, it really shouldn't be an issue anymore. And it's developed since then and then realizing that that was insufficient and that most people don't have access despite it being a very old, very cheap, very stable technology, that can be really maddening to watch, to see in a somewhat developed country where people just don't have access or other really basic things that you realize the problem comes from disenfranchisement that comes from either legality or economic factors or lack of infrastructure. And so the combination of having a scientific background saying, look, this is a scientific problem, it should have a scientific solution. And then looking at these sort of infrastructural questions and saying from a individualistic anarchistic perspective, then anybody should be able to solve this problem on their own. How do we empower people to be able to take care of it on their own? And that was sort of the impetus. So you brought up a couple of areas that it sounds like you guys are doing some research on. Uh, I know you guys have made a, a name for yourself around the uh, EpiPencil. So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about that and kind of the response you've gotten from that. Sure. The weird thing is that one was kind of a fluke. It wasn't an area of health that we'd focused on specifically prior to that. Our main foci were HIV, hepatitis C, abortion, birth control access, and opiate overdose reversal. And then, of course, there was this moment shortly after we came up from being an underground organization to being a above ground organization where, you know, Mylan Pharmaceuticals started overcharging ridiculously and Heather Bresch, who ran Mylan Pharmaceuticals, was testifying in front of Congress and lying to Congress and the world was kind of watching. And because we were somewhat known, we started getting a lot of requests through the web form saying, hey, why aren't you guys doing something about the EpiPen? And and I kept writing back saying, well, you know, it's, it's kind of don't do medical hardware. This is kind of not our thing. And we kept getting messages like, hey, this you should be. So I got on the platform that we were using at the time and chatted with the other members of the collective. And I said, look, does everybody think we should be doing something here? Because we're getting a lot of messages saying, why aren't we? And everybody said, yeah, let's put everything on hold. Let's do something about this. And it was, it was a really great couple of weeks. Everybody sort of pulled together and it was this question of 
all right, well, where's the problem? And why can't we do this ourselves? And, and how hard could it really be? And it, it took some time. At first we were saying, okay, well, how do we manufacture uh, epinephrine? And that wasn't the problem at all. You can get epinephrine in any drugstore for about a dollar. It was that they essentially had design patents on the only approved device that would actually do it. So, okay, well, there got to be auto injectors out there. We can just repurpose some other auto injector. It wasn't the actual medicine. It was the delivery device that's patented. Which is even weirder, right? Because the thing is, is that giving an intramuscular injection is not that tricky. If you've never done it before, I can show you how to do it once and you'll be able to do it. It's, it's a fairly simple process. And if you have a syringe with a needle and a vial of epinephrine, which is how it was done for a very, 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 very long time until Myelin Pharmaceuticals came along and said, oh, let's make something that is like user-proof, which it isn't. Um, then suddenly there was this artificial need created for something that didn't require training. This is wrong on multiple levels. First of all, you do need training. <laughs> multiple people, like it happens all the time that people will use an EpiPen incorrectly. Um, what people will do is they will grab it the wrong way around, put their thumb over the end, press down, and they'll, instead of administering it to the person they're trying to administer it to, it will stab them through the thumb and give them the shot of epinephrine. But because of the way the approval process works and because of the way liability laws are written in the United States, if you utilize that, even if it breaks, even if you utilize it incorrectly, it's not your fault if something goes wrong. While if you are crazily wielding an intramuscular injection, oh, right, syringe needle, um, then you might be liable for something if you got it wrong, which is also so preposterous because you're talking about somebody who within a few minutes period is going to stop breathing. And Good Samaritan laws, if you even believe in such things about being the parameters of what should govern your behavior, they're dying. Do anything. Do anything. Do a dance. Say a prayer. Pick your nose. Like anything you think might help, try to help. And so it shouldn't require a piece of hardware, but because of the mentality that's been cultivated, something that has the training sort of encoded into the hardware makes it such that people feel more comfortable about administering it. And so we went looking for some other auto injector to repurpose and they're not really out there. There are glucogen pens, there are the EpiPens, and then basically the only other auto injectors that are out there are ones that are designed as chemical warfare antidote auto injectors that are mainly utilized by the Israeli military. So we were kind of coming up dry. That's very specific. <laughs> very specific <laughs> purpose is EpiPens are fucking <laughs> chemical warfare uh, agent preventatives or something. Right. And as you can imagine the uh you know Mossad was not ready to do any business with us um 
So we kept looking and it turned out that there is one other auto injector out there that's designed for needle phobic diabetics. Now, it kind of, it, it wasn't a plug and play thing because it's designed for a very specific purpose. It's a sub Q injection, not an IM injection. So it's a little shallower. It's designed for something that has very small volume with very thin needle. So it kind of works for what we needed, but not entirely. It's still a very small volume, but the needle that you're supposed to use is longer and thicker. It needs to go deeper and it needs to deliver into the muscle, not into the fat layer. So we had to play around a little bit until we got something that fit and worked, but essentially there's a way that you can pair a large needle with a small syringe, load it up and then put it into this reloadable auto injector. Um, and it worked and it was great. And we got this huge response from it that we weren't expecting at all. And it was nice because, you know, some people do know about us because of that, but that was, that was really sort of just a, a side project that we picked up. And it, the, the narrative of it became even more bizarre because, you know, the FDA came out and said, you know, don't make your own EpiPen. Um, and then after Heather Bresch, you know, went back and lied to Congress some more, then they didn't drop the price. And then there was this massive recall. They had a whole bunch of them failing. And there are these really, really, really tragic stories because they're single use. If it doesn't work, you're dead in the water and there's no way to test to see if it works or not until it's time to use it. So people generally carry two in case one fails. And there are these just heartbreaking stories of like some guy was on a you know cross-country flight or maybe it was transatlantic and his, his daughter ate something in the airplane food that wasn't properly labeled for allergies she suddenly goes into anaphylactic shock don't worry he's a good father he's got two epipens he tries one it fails he tries the other one it fails and he has to sit there and watch her die i mean it's just like and there's so many stories like this and it's so terrible and then after that they did the recall and they still were failing. And then on top of that, once they fixed that, su supply was not meeting demand. You couldn't get them. Because people had tried to buy them, I'm guessing, before the prices were gouged even further. And there was a shortage because a bunch probably got thrown out. On top of the fact that they needed to buy more than one because they don't work. Right. And on top of that, they, they go bad after 18 months. And you can't reload them or reuse them. Yeah. Yeah, my son has a, two EpiPens, so it it's... Uh, at least right now, I picked some up last year, so I'm about due. I think even with insurance, it was like $450 for two EpiPens that he didn't use, like, thankfully, but also, like, that's just fucking stupid. Right. I'm guessing yeah. the government does you a favor by letting you use your FSA money for that each year, right? They I don't have a an tax FSA. Break. No, I got nothing. Oh. Anyway, and it's just tragic all the way around. And so being able to say, look, you can make your own. It costs about $30 to set up your first one. You can test it. You can reload it. And testing and reloading costs you $3 if you round up significantly. Yeah. So it's it's nice that it's out there. And I know you guys have been working on other projects as well. Uh, so I'm curious what you guys are, what's going on right now? We've got a lot going on right now. It's... um. It's always hard to prognosticate when things will be done though. When you have these sorts of projects and especially when you're operating with 
no funding and and everybody who's working on things you know having sort of life outside of their work with the collective things things are slow and you often have this experience of feeling like you're 85% of the way and then it takes the same amount of effort to get 85% of the difference right and so you're sort of approaching getting you get closer it's um, hard to tell right yeah yeah it's, it's hard so but we've got a lot of things jumping on the board one of them that's really exciting that is another piece of medical hardware is that we are looking to release plans on an open source defibrillator yeah so in terms of medical hardware that's about as miraculous as you get right if you go into vtac or vfib if you have a sudden cardiac arrest if you have a defibrillator nearby and it gets to you in time then you it's it's like the movies right where somebody just like wakes up and goes what happened like that doesn't happen with any other medical condition where you fall unconscious and you know and are about to die except that very specific cardiac rhythm that is shockable and then it just resets and people wake up and they're like what happened so it's a miracle device it's great and you're seeing them pop up in public places more you'll see the the little symbol and there's a little thing where you can break the glass pull it out and it's great right it talks you through it it does everything it tells you to call 911 it tells you to do cpr it has an an ekg that it's doing on the body as it goes and it'll tell you to stop and it'll assess. And if it's a shockable rhythm, you press a button and the person will just come back. In fact, the guy who holds the world record for greatest number of saves is, I believe, a subway a station manager in London. And the only reason is that he's got a huge throughput of people and he knows where the AED is. And so he grabs it as soon as he hears that somebody's collapsed and he puts it on. And so he saved some ridiculous number of people. So moral of the story from our point of view is, well, this should be in every home. E easy solution, right? Well, problem is, is that if you get the bargain basement ones, they're like $6,000, maybe $3,000 if you get the garbage ones. And where's most of that price? Most of that price is in the approval process and the fact that it's a company and they're trying to make money and et cetera, et cetera, and all of these things. 2017, this brilliant, brilliant group of researchers in Italy built a platform for developing open source medical devices. The whole idea was these sorts of things should be buildable by collaboration. People should be able to put them out there and then people should be able to build them themselves. And they should be approvable. We should be able to go through the same process that the company would that sets up a system by which a governing body, should you respect such a thing or lose sleep over it, would actually approve your, your device. And as a test bed, they did an AED. There was a guy who did his biomedical engineering dissertation on it and did a wonderful design. And we stumbled across this. And we had talked about open 
source AED back in the day, but we just didn't have the, the infrastructure or the expertise within the organization to be able to build such a thing. This, these guys had done it. And so we stumbled across it just a few months ago. It was in 2017. They did it just sort of as a test project and it didn't really get much attention. We we're all sort of stunned by this. So we got in touch and we said, hey, you know, we'd like to re-release this. There are some parts that need to be updated and we need a little more specificity so that people who are at the hobbyist level could build this without too much fuss, not people who are engineers. And they said, yeah, sure, go ahead. Um, so hopefully we will be releasing information on how to build your own AD for about $600 US. A tenth of the cost of what? <laughs> of a shitty one. <laughs> right. Right. And yeah, dropping an order of magnitude and cost is, I feel, is the win. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I feel like this touches on something that we start each episode with. We talk about it all the time. But um, critical knowledge and knowledge that can save lives, especially, or knowledge that um, should be nourishing lives, like how to grow food and things like that. Knowledge is for everyone. And I feel like this definitely highlights it. And that's why I'm glad you're on today. But it doesn't seem like we should be having this problem. Like you said, there's already, the problem has already been solved, but we're fighting a different battle of getting these reasonable solutions to people who need them. I mean, one of the things that we talk about so often is how our goal is to cease to exist as an organization. We'd like to not be necessary. We shouldn't be necessary right. by all rights. Right. Hopefully one day we will be able to say, Fourth East Vinegar Collective is shutting up shop because we're no longer needed that that would be the dream absolutely uh, yeah so uh unfortunately we kind of live in the nightmare instead please please stay yeah. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> we're I, staying as long as we're needed we just hope we won't be needed one day yeah and i think this points to and i know we talked about it before we had started recording you know our, our general focus has been around this idea of uh, reimagining what things could look like um, once the system that we know inevitably will fail fails and we start to try to rebuild and pick up the pieces and take the knowledge we've learned from the failures of the system to make a better world. Kind of how how does this kind of fit into that to like I guess the anarchist vision of what community would look like? Well, I think one of the central tenets of anarchism in in practice is that when there's a need, you try to fill the need and you don't ask for permission, right? And the the main thing that seems to bar people from having access to medicines is this sense of permission that you don't give care unless you have been ordained by the authorities. You don't reach for care because you are not of a class of person who's been given rights to do so. And to prop this up, there is this mythology that the medical infrastructure knows best, is infallible, is in some way 
the the final authority is the arbiter of truth is equipped in some unique way to be able to give advice administer treatment uh, share medicines and that's not to say that having somebody who is experienced or who has studied the concerns with which you're concerned isn't of use, but to barrier access doesn't do anybody any good. And and so in terms of, to, to the question, the sort of anarchist theory is, well, if you know what you need, you go and grab it. And in more anarcho-syndicalist way, you can say, well, we get together and we go out and get what we need. There are any number of ways to go about it. And I think that, I think that we will see more and more of that occurring. It has occurred out of necessity in the past. You see, I see three major groups who have done this very well. The harm reduction community has done an incredible job of getting safe safety materials, including naloxone and sterile tools to recreational intravenous drug users. The uh, abortion activists community has done a stupendous job of working circumlegally to get medicated abortions to people who need them as best they can. And the, the radical trans community has done an incredible job and is continuing to grow in terms of self-medicated uh, gender-affirming uh, therapy drugs. That those things have happened because those three demographics of people are highly marginalized and have not been supported by the infrastructure well. And so if you want one of those therapies, you kind of have to get it yourself unless you're very, very lucky. Um, but I think that in terms of a vision of a, what comes next and what we're likely to see and what we would hope to see is that that's sort of a concentrated microcosm of what everybody experiences. Everybody has a doctor's horror story where they said, oh, I figured out what's wrong. You go to a doctor and you ask for help and you're not really asking for help. You're just asking for permission. You're saying, hey, I need this please write me a little piece of paper so that the other person who has the keys to the box that has my medicine in it will sell it to me. And having somebody say, mm, no, uh, that's not my opinion. I'm not going to do that. And once that sensibility that that really is a universal experience that people have and not some sort of exception, uh, people will start to realize that Seizing access is really the best 
easiest, most efficient way to go about managing health in many cases. Right. And it seems insane that there's an argument against autonomy, but even even allowing that access to people who are in need, uh, there's an argument against that saying, you know, you don't have permission, whether it's from patents or you didn't get approval from, you know, an accredited doctor, um, which I mean, I understand. I, I guess I'm trying to understand the difference between being prescribed medicine and self-medicating in, in this sense. But I guess that's where the need comes into play. If you don't need it, I guess it's self-medicating versus if you need it, then that's your medicine, right? I think it's maybe even simpler. And and this, and this, this draws back to what you guys were talking about a minute ago in terms of sort of anarchist theory. When you engage people who argue against the sort of autonomy that we're talking about, when you when you boil them down far enough to the point where they'll sort of cop to their uh, axioms that underlie their philosophy, that you basically get one of two fairly simple camps. You get the camp where we say, look, there's a certain inherent freedom that comes with being human. There's a certain idea of self-determination, being able to make your own decisions, even if they are bad decisions, should not be infringed. Or you have this other camp of, well, most people don't know what's best for them. And we need people who know what's best to be making decisions for people to make sure that they don't do bad things by mistake or bad things intentionally because we know better. And the the underlying thing that often gets missed there in the public discourse is, well, that means that there are the special people and then there are the rest of us, you know, and, and of course that, that comes with all of the horrible baggage that we um, know all too well. Yeah. So I want to ask, you know, I think what's really interesting about this project is that it, while it's not, it's obviously not in defense of modern medicine as it exists today. It's also not a part of like the naturalist, which is usually considered like the counterweight to uh, modern pharmacy. Um, so I'm kind of curious about how you see, I guess, how that triangulated relationship plays into what you guys do in your vision and uh, all those different components. I'll start by saying thank you for asking because this is something about which we've thought a great deal and it's something that I have not gotten to talk about yet. Yeah, immediately when you think about self-managed health, the first thing that comes to mind with a lot of people is like, oh, well, can you deal with this nutritionally? Are there ways that you can that you can use stuff that is um, ancient in nature? You can use the old wisdom. Are there ways that you can, you know, how much does diet and exercise get into it? And can you just hydrate and walk around a little more? Or maybe you need a little more calcium in your diet and you can take a supplement. And while those things are true, and there are lots of ways that you can improve your health through methodologies that aren't regulated, we're not needed for that. So if, if you say, oh, cool, well, I have a calcium deficiency. And if I take a calcium supplement or put sesame seeds on everything that I eat or, or however you decide to manage it, then that's cool. 
we're not needed. There's no stopgap there. You just you do it yourself and, and great. And all those methodologies, it's great that they're out there and it's great that there's as much activism and literature as there is. Our role in terms of trying to fill a need is to take the things that are outside of that, the things to which people do not have access because of legality or price or infrastructure and to say, okay, how do we get around that problem? Health as a field is incredibly deep and broad and multidimensional. There are so many moving parts and it's, it's easy to sort of fall into the trap of thinking categorically, but at the same time, thinking categorically does allow you to limit your scope so that you can be effective. And to look at what we do, what we sort of focus on is saying, are there established technologies that are high leverage that people don't have access to for whatever reason, and we can remove whatever the barrier is. And that's sort of our role. So that's why we typically look at modern treatments and tools and medications, because if like, sure, you can, you know, make yourself tea and take supplements and adjust your lifestyle. And that's, takes care of a lot if you do it. That's not going to keep your body hepatitis free though. And so if you need to purge your body of hepatitis C and you don't have $82,000 to drop on a course of Savaldi, what do you do then? And that's sort of where we come in to say, okay, this is a modern technology. This is a really novel molecule and while okay if you believe in the concept of exchange then maybe there's something to be said for somebody made that medicine for you and maybe some medium of exchange for the trouble that they took to do it isn't entirely inappropriate but maybe not eighty two thousand dollars worth and certainly there shouldn't be a barrier to access in terms of well, if you wanted to do this yourself, that is no trouble of anybody else's. So how might you do that? That comes into question and say, well, if you could make it yourself that, again, even with these ideas of market, you don't detract from somebody else's market share if you make it yourself. You just changed it from being, I have no access to, now I have access. It, it doesn't, I, I'm sure there's, so many things that come into play as far as legality goes and the line of work that you do, but it just seems like, Oh yes. It, it just seems like what are the laws actually trying to accomplish? Because all it seems like it's doing is treating the person who's in need um, as if they're doing something criminal when they're really just trying to solve their own problem without um, when otherwise they couldn't. Right. They, they when, can't afford to. Well, when otherwise there's just too many barriers to have somebody else solve it for them. Yeah. And the weird thing that has occurred to me over the years is I've tried to study the, the forces that shape the landscape is that the people who are passing these laws and building these systems of trade and infrastructure and setting prices and producing products, they 
for the most part, think they're doing the right thing, which is really easy to forget. We often think, I think a lot of us often fall into the trap of thinking that the businesses, pharmaceutical industry, the legislative process is immoral. When we look at businesses, they're not, they're not immoral, they're amoral, which is an important differentiation, right? They're looking to manufacture money and they'd like to do that in the most efficient way possible because that's the only thing that figures into their calculus. So when you look at that, you think, well, gosh, you know, if we could just adjust things one way or another, then what happens is that, I mean, if, if it made them more money to act in a way that was moral, they do that. It just doesn't figure in. They're not trying to screw people over. It's just cheaper to screw people over. Right. They often find it's more effective or profit laden to, um, to make less medicine at a higher cost because the marginal value of increasing doesn't offset their expenses. Right, exactly. It's a, it's a pretty simple calculation if those are your only variables. Sure, you've got, you've got cost and profit and cool. You can draw yourself a little graph and boop, there's our little, you know, there's our peak point. Don't go past here. Um, again, th- that sort of thing makes sense from that perspective. And similarly, when you think about what the somebody who's secretary of health of a nation needs to think about there's this drastic difference that you see in perspective when you go from the microethical to the macroethical when i have a friend whose liver is failing because they have hepatitis c that person needs to get fixed that's the entirety of the universe there and I'm going to do everything I possibly can to make sure that that person can live and have a high quality of life. And that's, those are the concerns that come. When you're operating on the scale of nations, you don't have the luxury of being able to look on that scale. You're trying to say, I'm going to make these broad stroke decisions that are going to get a lot of people hurt and killed. How do I try to minimize the number of people who are killed and try to make the hurt as less bad as I can mitigate, roughly speaking? And then, of course, there are all these questions of, and continue to do my job, right? And then the questions of things like lobbyists and who decides what you're allowed to decide come into play really fast. Uh, And so, again, from looking at things from those people's perspective, it's, it gets a little harder to blame them. I mean, I still blame them, but, (laughs) but you can at least see why they're misguided the way they are. Right. And it, I don't know if the, I'm always one to try to walk in somebody else's shoes, but if they're looking at this problem from their own standpoint and they need these things, do you think they find it reasonable to pay $82,000 if their liver is failing? Or do you think they think that that's just as ridiculous as any other person would? I think likely when operating at that scale, it's very easy to lose perspective. 
Right. I don't think, I mean, let's start with the fact that I don't think there's any legislator out there who, if they did have to drop $82,000 on a course of treatment, it would be a problem. Right. That's fair. So we're already dealing with a class of person who has a concept of being resource rich in their everyday life. So in terms of that's going to have to be a greater stretch of their empathy to be able to figure out what that might mean for the average person. And again, like they're looking at a spreadsheet full of statistics. They're not talking to their friends. Their friends aren't broke either. Probably. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> like, I, I think this all points to the a very obvious problem with the size of nations and in general, like hierarchy and all these other issues that coincide so quickly when we start talking about scales of this magnitude. One of the things that I've been kind of following, not super closely, but something that's been kind of in the periphery is a lot of the work going on in the Zapatistas region in terms of their medical care and uh, the development they've been doing. And I I'm kind of curious um, about your thoughts of things like what you guys are doing and how that kind of work can play into those types of regions. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm bubbling over with excitement. I can't even talk. Um, yes, absolutely. I, I continue to hope that the tools that we're developing will be used as leverage for other anarchist movements. And one of the reasons that I focused on health when I was sort of deciding where to take my activism is that it seems antecedent to everything. Think about any, any action across the spectrum. Even if you imagine you're, you're trying to push legislation through to, you're going to go out and have a riot. If you've got the flu, you're not doing anything. You're sitting at home. And if you're lucky, you can read a book while you sweat it out. You're, you're, you're out, you're benched. If you're sick, nothing else is possible. If you don't have your health, you don't have anything. And so, you know, I've, I've often said, like, if you want to start a revolution, if you're, if you're raising the army, you build the hospital first. And so this is sort of, our way of trying to build the structure so that everybody can build their hospital first and on whatever scale they might need, whether it's, I live alone and I just need to support my own health to, I am going to be a dispensary for my neighborhood to, I need to support a, a troop of insurgents in a, a place where maybe a military coup has occurred that's kind of not cool. Right. Not too far away from where I am, maybe north of here. Just, just to maybe. point in a direction. Yeah, he's, he's pointing. <laughs> yeah, I see, I see which direction you're pointing. I see that. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's... Again, you, it, you guys are... In the are same way that you would build a munitions factory first, right? Where you say, okay, you know, like... Yeah, there are guerrilla tactics where you can say, all right, we'll steal resources from the other side. But like, okay, cool. But until you do, you need to start somewhere. 
right? There's there's this antecedent thing. And so yeah, again, health seems to be the antecedent thing. Awesome. And it seems like you guys are um help helping find a way to get that knowledge to everyone. And I it's uh very We're respectable trying. and it's a lot of work and it's a lot of uh forethought and figuring out how to put it together because even when you mentioned uh, creating the Epi Pencil, um, you took a design that was already fleshed out pretty well, but you still needed to um, do a little work to get it to the level of uh, saying a hobbyist could do it as opposed to an engineer. That doesn't sound like it's any big step, but I'm sure that takes a lot of uh, forethought and planning and and a lot of work. And um, I'm, I'm yeah, sure I'm sure that's that the a great idea. Great example of scale, right? As you say, this is three, four, if you count the medicine itself, off the shelf components that you merely combine. And just doing that took weeks, a dozen people, a tremendous amount of work on sourcing and documentation. And that's about the simplest thing we've ever done. And so when you step up to saying like, okay, how do you build a chemical reactor that's automated so you can manufacture medications or how do you build an AED or how do you genetically engineer a bacteria that can reset a microbiome in your body like things get more complicated um the, the work that's required and the complexity have an exponential relationship right right as you say but as the people who use these products i'm sure they appreciate the work that you do um, when it's, you know, helping save their life or um, helping them uh, cure themselves or help themselves in whatever situation um, that they need. Um, because as you said, you are operating on a needs base. I'm, I'm sure they appreciate not having to pay 82 grand or sell a kidney so that they can spend spend some more time on the sun in the sunshine. Yeah, I, I hope so. That's the that's the hope. That's the goal. Have you um, seen anything, any like spinoff type projects from what you guys are doing or like inspired projects from what you're doing? Occasionally. And that in the very early days, that was our first sort of metric of success was, you know, because that's sort of the metric of success of any open source project. Right. As soon as somebody picks it up and makes a better version means means you did it right. And so there have been a couple of people who have built other versions of the micro lab that, that vary in their functionality, sometimes simpler, um, sometimes a little more purpose built. Uh, some of the designs that we've incorporated have been from independent people who just said, hey, you know, I designed this part because it seemed simpler and, and now now we use it. So it, it's it hasn't been as much as I'd like, of course, right? There's not a, a big open source health community yet, um, but hopefully that will continue to grow and we'll see more of this sort of thing cropping up. There's this strange space that health inhabits in society's mind where doing it yourself is even more stigmatized than 
most things. I mean, again, the the conjugate example that I give for people in the United States is most people in the United States have automobiles. If you have an automobile, the most basic type of maintenance is changing your oil. And almost nobody does it themselves, even though it is literally as simple as you unscrew one bolt and you let a container drain and then you screw the bolt back in and you refill that container. And yet people are scared to do it. If you ask, people say, well, what if I do it wrong? I, what, how do I have a lot of questions. <laughs> Where do you start? <laughs> right. And, and the, and the thing is, is that we, in, in, in so many walks of life, there is this sense of don't try it and you might break it. And so naturally, if that is the underlying system of thought with people, then if it's your body, like, well, sure, you don't want to, risk breaking it if that's really a high risk but we need to start thinking about things differently we need to start helping people realize that managing your own health is safer than outsourcing it and just taking somebody's word for it now that's again it's not to say that consulting with people who have studied is without value it certainly has value but you should be involved in the process and we shouldn't have an attitude of outsourcing responsibility. The reason that that's such a comfortable thing to do is you go get oil changed by somebody else and they put no oil in your car and it destroys the engine. Well, it wasn't your fault. That's why that feels comfortable. Oh, oh, I didn't do it. I have somebody else I can blame. That's really the function of a doctor in many cases is Here's somebody I can blame if it doesn't work. I did what the doctor told me to do. I didn't ask any questions. I just did as I was told. I think there's a lot of resultants from the Western trend of anti-intellectualism where, oh, oh, that's a thing that, that educated people, that smart people do. I don't know about that. I'm just a regular guy. It's like, well, you know, being a regular person, I think, should encompass taking care of basic things for yourself. That same sort of empowerment that comes from uh, knowing how to bake bread or, or being able to you know, fix things when they break instead of being like, oh, something's wrong. And, and one of the things that's really hard to navigate is that oftentimes things like what we're doing start out as well-intentioned empowerment devices and then get caught in what I call the de-skilling cycle where you end up having people disenfranchised from access. The point of access is just different. And one of the big examples of this that I experienced was I remember a guy came to pick me up and give me a ride to a makerspace and he looked really frustrated. And I said, you're okay. And he says, I've been on hold with 
tech support from MakerBot for the last three hours. And I thought, hmm, we've lost. We've lost. Because the whole point, the very crux, if you read the manifestos, the whole point of 3D printing was you no longer were beholden to infrastructure if you wanted small-scale manufacture. Right. And now, cool, it's a different infrastructure that you're beholden to. It's, it's failed. It's over. Like, you know, and people are working to rectify that, and it's getting better, but that was just such a depressing moment. And so my greatest nightmare is that some company starts, you know, builds some version of the micro lab that gets FDA approval and everybody has one in the house, but then they're on the phone, you know, trying to get the app to license them to be able to make the drug at home and they're paying, you know, okay, maybe only $62,000 for the Solvaldi that they're manufacturing. Right. You know? And I'd, I'd hate to see that. And so I try and, I mean, it's hard to mitigate against the future because there's so many intangibles, but the goal is always to try and get people to keep that thought process of everything has been made by a human being. You're a human being means you can do it too. You're just not that much different than they are. Give it a shot. Don't be scared. Yeah. I guess my final question that I really have for you is around this, I guess, kind of what you're saying right now about how to stay outside of the capitalism, which I, I know is not possible, but also like w what tools do we have to maintain the separation between of dual, like to create that dual power uh, in order to facilitate and continue to grow different types of projects like this. So for example, there's an open source project you might have heard about for farmers that's focused on John Deere. Oh, yeah. I've seen some of the lawsuits in the right to repair uh, movement that's happening in the Midwest. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so like, I, I know that like is a small example, but it points to the fact that these these types of dual power where we try to own our own autonomy in whatever way possible, either get sued into oblivion or uh, get co-opted into things like you know, Pirate Bay turning into Netflix, you know, that type of stuff where <laughs> the, the methodologies that we started. create Jeez. get commodified. Well, greed and convenience are the death of the soul. I think that's been pretty well established over the history of humanity. And it takes a great vigilance to fight against that, even on the most individual level. And I mean, I think your example of basically most torrents surrounding music are much harder to find these days because Spotify has done so well. And Spotify has done so well because it's easier. And, you know, and, and despite the existence of popcorn time, Netflix has done better. And there's this, there are weird arguments to be made about again, scale and efficiency and ease. And there are people who would rather have things genuinely on demand than wait 20 minutes and not pay a giant corporation. Mm -hmm. And then that risk mitigation. And the risk mitigation too, because a lot of decisions, you know, 
it's it's interesting too, right? Because you find people who claim that they're anti-capitalist and that they will claim that they're atheists, and still most of their decisions are made based on fear and guilt, which are the sort of central tenets of capitalism and monotheism. And and you you have to start just by trying to do sort of an intellectual meditation of trying to think beyond that first order logic of reaction. It's hard because we're not designed for that. As animals, humans are just not designed to do these really complicated tasks that we're doing. Everything we do is bootstrapped, right? We're, we're running this very recent software on this very, very, very old hardware that has not been upgraded in bit, you know, tens of thousands of years, if you're really optimistic. And so it takes a lot of, as I said, discipline and, and slow, careful thought to unpack our kind of knee-jerk reactions that happen in terms of being afraid of retribution, wanting to take a path that takes less effort. And it takes a lot. You essentially have to hack your brain. You have to hack your thought process and you build in a patch. You're, you're, you're patching an outdated modus. You, you, and it takes this more complicated structure of thought to build. You, you sit down, you have dialogue with good people, you, you read, you think, you try and make up your own mind about what you decide is best and how best to go about it. And then you have to practice acting on those ideas over and over and over and over and over again until it becomes sufficiently automatic that you don't have to go through the entire process of breaking down the rhetoric down to its axioms every time you have to make a decision. But it takes, it takes such vigilance. It takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of thought. And for that reason, I think it's really important, especially for those of us who have long been in radical activist communities to cut everyone who's not on the same page a tremendous amount of slack because most people don't have the bandwidth to do that. There's this perpetuation that occurs in most of the world where people are forced into a survival mode where they don't have the luxury to take the time to build those workarounds. And I don't have a great solution for how to fix that yet. Um, but I think we should chat some more and maybe we can figure something out. Right. That's the whole point of doing this. And I'm grateful that you guys are doing it. And I think it's important. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on you do a great job of bringing out these conversations in a, a nuanced way that is uh, 
important that the world isn't in black and white and we have to do we have to be better than the other side mm-hmm. is I think what it comes down to. We have to be more thoughtful. Right. Um, and, I, and I think something was touched out on this conversation as well was um, we do have to be better than the other side. But at the same time, uh, we have to be aware of um, falling into, you know, one of those two camps that we had mentioned earlier where we're not being the ones saying this is what's best for everybody yeah. and this is the way to do it. Yes. Um, I, I find that that's, and, and that's what you're saying about hacking your brain and patching it over so that you're not falling into that camp. It's a very fine line and it does require a lot of vigilance and discipline. And um, it seems like that being your main tenant is going to steer you in the right direction towards uh, where you're actually needed versus where your intentions lie. And I think that's very important. And, and ultimately, as you say, I think this is a really critical element that, and it's one of the things that I think a lot of people find paradoxical, is that if you're truly an anarchist, you don't think that everybody should subscribe to your values. Mm-hmm. You say, this is what I think, and this is what I think is best for me, and I might have it right and I might have it wrong. And so might you. Right. And I think the the underlying truth is nobody knows. So maybe if everybody has a billion different ideas, then one of us is going to be right. And then we'll have learned something. Well, I think even more than that, is there a right? Is there a right for anybody except any given individual? And how would I even know what's best for anybody except for me? And I probably don't even know what's best for me, but at least I should be able to make my own decision. And I should have sufficient respect for everybody else to let them make their own decision. My goal is to keep all of those in mind as I make decisions moving forward with, I guess, you life. know, walk, yeah, life in general, <laughs> walk, walking through this world. And and that's, yeah. why, that's why I'm glad we started this podcast because we have these conversations and... Um, it was great having you on to talk about what you're doing and have the more philosophical conversation about how we think about self-determination and medicating ourselves and saving ourselves um, from when it's needed. And each other when we have the chance. Absolutely. Every, every time. As always, if you enjoy the episode... Please give us a review on iTunes, which heavily impacts our outreach to new listeners and helps us bring on new and exciting guests. We appreciate your support, and we hope you enjoyed this conversation. Thanks, guys. Thanks thanks for listening to the Poor Pearls Almanac.